0: Good morning, and welcome to Positively Politics, the show where we break down the sometimes complicated and often negative world of politics in a straightforward, unbiased, and academically rooted way. My name is Dr. Laura Merrifield Wilson. I'm an assistant professor of political science here at the University of Indianapolis, as well as the host of the show. And I'd like to thank you for joining me this morning. Glorious December morning, although I will say it is pretty chilly. And I know everyone's very quick to tell me, yeah, it's December. I know, but cold weather without snow is, well, by definition, just cold weather. And I would prefer to have a a white holiday season. So maybe maybe that's in the cards. I don't know. Not that kind of scientist here. But (laughs) we are going to talk about some interesting uh, things going on in politics this week. And I'm extending the definition of a week to include last Saturday and Friday because of everything happening in the wee hours of the morning that I didn't get to talk about last week. And most notably, that was the passage of the Senate bill in terms of the new tax policy. And we're on the precipice of what could be an incredible moment I see for potentially both parties in terms of this. And I know I discussed that a little bit last week. Like, oh, you know, if they're able to pass it out of the Senate, this could be good for Republicans. This could be good for Democrats. But really, as we're looking at this bill, I wanted to get into the nitty gritty details of the legislation. And in part, because those can actually change. Um, And so I want to talk about what it looks like right now, what the process is with this I consider this to be one of the more exciting things that's happened in politics recently. And uh, and I say that, you know, I know there are a lot of people that have really strong opinions about it. You know, it, it's good for some people, it's not good for others. And then the larger question that I believe should always be rooting any of our politics is how good is this for our country? What does this do for our citizens, for our communities? You know, those larger questions, I, I want to go through some of the details today. And, you know, not to necessarily change your mind about it, but to inform you about what this stands for. You know, and, and I know there's a real it feels like a really hard partisan divide. All of my conservative friends love this and my liberal friends hate it. And uh, and it's almost divided perfectly in that way based on partisanship and ideology. But but I don't think everyone's necessarily looking through a piece of legislation and, and understanding what it is, and it's going through a process of reconciliation. I want to discuss because, uh, in terms of Senate and House procedures, <laughs> you know, not that people don't know about that and where it goes. I saw so many people talking on Saturday saying like, "Oh, so when's Trump going to sign it into a law? When you know, when does the president approve this?" And it's like, "Oh, no, 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 we're not there yet. Uh, that we're skipping an important part of the process." So, so talking about essentially where it is, and and I also wanted to spend some time today talking about. Yet again, more of these sexual harassment um, claims coming out, some of these allegations, talking about who has finally stepped down and announced resignation or at least retirement, who is still in the running, um, and without hammering things that we've discussed before. And uh, believe me, I, I don't necessarily enjoy talking about this, but I think it is a really important point to talk about, and I think there is a positive side to it. You know, there, there are a lot of vacancies now in Congress for the people that are stepping down, they're choosing not to run, and some of them not related to the sexual harassment allegations. So you you think uh, Senator from Tennessee, Bob Corker, think Arizona Senator Jeff Flake. For whatever reason, there are a lot of people who have announced a year almost (laughs) at this point in advance of the election that they are not seeking reelection. Usually that flurry of announcements First of all, it's hardly a flurry. Not a lot of people saying it. And secondly, that's more of a January, February decision. So we've had a lot of these so far, but this leaves vacancies. This leaves open seats. This leaves opportunities for new people, new blood, new ideas. And so I think that flip side is really important, but also just kind of how we're viewing specifically with regards to the sexual harassment and sexual um allegations really just everything involved with them how we're viewing it as a country and just socially and and how much it's changed really even I you know some people say like oh within the last 50 years I think within the last 50 months within the last year our conversations have changed our values tolerance acceptance willingness to let some things slide and and not others have changed and dramatically so, which I think is fascinating. And and that's something that you see reflected in the politics of people in part because of the social differences. So I, I wanna talk about these things here this morning. First, starting off with what I think was the more exciting political drama of the season and something that's important to everyone, even though not everyone always cares about it, and that is tax policy. I am such a fiscal policy nerd. I love studying taxation policy. Because to me, it's getting at the heart of American political values. You know, I, I genuinely believe that Democrats and Republicans have the same overreaching objectives. They, they want the same overarching themes for our country. But the question is how to reach those. What's the best way to do it? You know, and, and this gets right at tax policy because everyone wants a tax policy that's equitable, Right, we all want something that we're all paying our fair share, as that phrase goes. You know, but but what does it mean to be equal? What is fair? <laughs> is there a thing as fair in politics? I I, I think there is, but I also think you're going to have a lot of disagreement on that based on people's ideological perceptions. You know whether or not. A regressive or a flat tax is fair. You know, a, a liberal wouldn't agree with that, but a conservative certainly would. And vice versa, a more progressive tax, like our current income tax structure, would be something that a liberal would say was fair, while a conservative most definitely would not. So just as an overarching theme, I think when you talk about equity as a political value, it, that's really important in terms of taxation policy, because nobody thinks – It should be disproportionate. But the question is, what is truly proportionate and what is truly fair? And I don't think that's something that is going to be addressed in in any policy, certainly not in this current piece of legislation. But nonetheless, an incredibly um, dramatic event uh, transpired in late Friday night into the wee hours of Saturday morning. I think they ultimately voted and passed the Senate bill. If I remember correctly, it was the 130 or 140 and I'll tell you, I tried so hard to stay a, uh, stay awake because this was really exciting. My husband and I were listening to, um, listening to the hearings before we went to bed. Like sometimes we'll watch Netflix and, and instead we had these on. And it was fascinating. You heard um, Rubio get up and talk. You heard Durbin get up and talk. A, a number of senators who you don't always hear from them. They don't get a lot of spotlight time. Granted, I just mentioned two who usually do. But. Nonetheless, you, you saw a lot of representation from people you don't always see in the Senate. And I thought they did a great job, almost everyone speaking, and some people are more articulate and more impassioned than others. But but they did a great job at explaining where they were coming from and really trying to share their opinions on this legislation. So all of this stuff goes down. It was, it was better than a Netflix drama, let's be honest. Friday night into the very early hours of Saturday – Ultimately, the Senate votes to pass the legislation, and, and there were real question marks up until Friday afternoon when McConnell was really excited that he had the votes. There were a lot of newspapers reporting this. Mitch McConnell has secured the votes. He's ready to take it um, to the floor for an actual vote. There are people saying, like, well, who's defecting? How, how many defectors can the Republicans allow? What kind of allocations, what allowances can they give them um, to keep people voting? And, and you saw that with uh, Susan Collins of Maine. You know, she had some concerns, met with Mitch McConnell. Those were appeased. She decided to vote for it rather than against it, as she initially was. Um, Rand Paul, uh, Jeff Flake. In the end, the only person in the Republican Party who did not vote with the rest of the party was Senator from Tennessee, Bob Corker. And he was the only one. So he's he announced his retirement back in September. He's not seeking reelection, And his primary concern was one that was shared by Jeff Flake, um, who ultimately did, by the way, vote in favor of it. But you had a 51 to 49 passage. And the Republicans, of course, control the Senate 52 to 48. They could have, certainly wouldn't have wanted to, but they could have another Republican defector if it so happened. Because, of course, if you had 50-50, we know procedurally that the person who comes in to break the tie in the Senate would be the vice president. In this case, former governor of Indiana, Mike Pence. And if he's coming in to break the tie, and this is a piece of legislation that the administration has been very um, strongly seeking, and they've been really vocal about how much they want to pass this, you you would be hard pressed to assume Pence would vote in, in any way other than in favor. It wouldn't be a question mark. But Luckily for him, I guess, the vice president didn't have to step in because you only had one Republican vote against. If you're just joining us, this is Dr. Laura Merrifield-Wilson here on Positively Politics on WICR 88.7, The Diamond. We're talking about everything that happened in the last week, transpiring with the Senate um, in terms of the taxation policy. And then I want to get into the nitty gritty of the policy and also talk about a few other things that happened at the congressional level. But... In this 51 to 49 vote, close, although basically against party lines with Corker ultimately siding for the Democrats, as I mentioned, he had one concession that was not it was not ever addressed. And that was his concern for the national deficit. Uh, but it was a major concern, especially for a lot of uh, conservative policy analysts when they say, okay, if we're going to cut taxes, but we're not going to cut spending, and this bill... Um, This is just about taxes. is how much revenue we're bringing in. So we're not talking about where the money's going. But if we're not going to cut taxes proportionate to the amount of spending that we are willing to cut, we're going to run more debt. And that's an unfortunate pastime for us at the national level because we have a history of mounting debt. In my entire lifetime, we've only had two years, two, only two, where we did not bring in less money than we ultimately spent. And those were the last two years of the Clinton administration. And so we actually had a what we call a budget surplus because we brought in more money than we spent those particular two years. Now, realize we still had debt from all of the other years that was accumulating. So it's not like it was particularly great. Um, but you had two years where you weren't spending more than what you brought in, which seems great. And, and I will say I was talking to somebody else about this earlier this week. When we were saying, you know, with involving um, the sexual assault and sexual harassment allegations – why Why do we allow some people passes and not others? And it's interesting because we've had presidents who have been um, on the receiving end, that they've been allegedly uh, mistreating women, you know, in terms of sexual assault, sexual harassment, a, a variety of ways. And not just the allegations, there's proof. And uh, if you look at current President Trump, if you look at former President Clinton, you know, this isn't a partisan thing. This isn't an ideological thing. This is we've had people in the White House representing our country with where there is proof that they mistreated women in these kind of ways. And you can say, why was you know, why were they allowed to and why were not others? One thing that was mentioned in a conversation I was having with someone else really interested in politics, is he said, "You know, the country's doing well. I think when the country is doing well, people are willing to forget. And people are willing to let go, and they'll, they'll relax their moral and ethical standards if we're doing well economically. And there's a part of me that wonders, how, how true is that? You know, and what does that say about our moral and ethical standards? <laughs> and I can't even call them principles, because the principle is unwavering. If you have standards, now I'm starting to think that they fluctuate based on uh, where Dow Jones Industrial Average is. Uh, that doesn't sound very ethical or moral to me. But going back to to this national deficit, this was Bob Corker's point of contention. This was his holdout. I encourage you, if you've never done it before, and as long as you're not someone who gets um, anxious easily, and I'll say, I can be one of those people, I, I'm, you know, I, I'm very emotional in reaction to things. And, and this kind of ekes me out. But right now, I, you can look. If you go to um, nationaldebtclocks.org for example, and that's just one of them. There are a lot of different places you can look at it. Uh, this one has a lot of different countries, which I like. For the comparison, you can feel a little bit better. Yes, many countries want to run a deficit. Not as many countries has the amount have the amount of national debt that we have, but you can pull it up here, and there are one, two, three, four commas in the dollar amount of the national debt we have. And it's the $20.5 trillion, essentially. But as you watch it, the number keeps increasing and accumulating. And I've, I've looked at it. And, and when you do this, you, you don't have to look at it for very long before you start to feel really anxious and uncomfortable and thinking like, oh, my gosh, we're spending so much money. We're not bringing it in. This, this is wrong. So... This was Corker's big argument against the tax plan. Now, granted, a lot of fiscal conservatives did vote in favor of the tax plan. You say, well, what makes the difference? And and they were thinking through trickle-down economics. They believe that if you give tax breaks to corporations, and in this case, in terms of getting into some of the nitty-gritty of the legislation, one of the things that this bill would do would be basically dropping the top corporate tax rate from 35% to 20%. So it, it's cutting it sharply. So that way, corporations are more incentivized to stay in this country, to hire workers. You know, Using that conservative ideology, they'd say, well, it's trickle-down economics. We are giving them more money that they will then infuse back into the economy. And, and this is the argument, that that will not add to our national deficit. Corker had serious reservations, and, and many people do, of how how much this works. Does this work? How how exactly would it work and apply? And, um, and if it didn't, would there be a stopgap? So one of the things that Corker had initially suggested was putting in what they call a trigger amendment. And procedurally, I think this is so cool. This is why I'm, I'm fascinated by everything that's happened because it's neat from a procedure perspective. And it's really cool from a taxation policy perspective. You know, love or hate any of it. There's some unusual stuff that we don't get to talk about a lot in politics and and all these things that had transpired. But the trigger amendment would have allowed, if it looked like, in fact, the trickle-down economics was not working and we were accumulating more debt, this would have allowed that stopgap and saying, no, we'll repeal those tax cuts because they're not working in favor of our economy. And procedurally, because of where the bill was, they weren't able to add this trigger amendment in. It was too late in the process. And for this, time is truly of the essence. This is Dr. Laura Merrowfield Wilson here on Positively Politics on WICR 887 The Diamond. We're talking about the Senate tax bill, everything that's happened in the last week. And, And real quickly, I did want to go through the policy nitty gritty of it. Now, I know one of the things the Democrats made a big deal about during the hearings on Friday night was how lengthy the legislation was and to be direct it is 479 pages of brand new tax legislation (sighs) that's a lot I've looked through a lot of it I haven't read all 479 pages very honest with you Um, and even though I love tax policy it is heavy you know, it, it is very difficult to get through. So in this in this very lengthy document, a lot of the Democrats were saying, we haven't had a chance to read this. We don't know what's in this bill. People who are voting for and against it don't know what's in this bill. We don't have enough time. And uh, there was actually a point where Senator Dick Durbin of Illinois, I remember, was standing up and pointing out to one of the pages that had handwritten scribble on the side because they, they had written it up so quickly they weren't able to get it to the printer, to type. And so he, someone had written all these other amendments in it in longhand, essentially. And he said, you know, made a big deal about this, like how we're rushing it, how people can't see it. Is there a way we can get this in our, into the record? Um, and then there was a long procedural thing about, like, could it get into the record and, and everything like that. But it, you know, it, it was, it's very lengthy. And I'll say, just, To be fair, so is most legislation, important legislation and legislation that's involved with complicated issues, and most policies are, it's going to be very long. You know, the Affordable Care Act was incredibly lengthy. Decisions about the Supreme Court decision on the Affordable Care Act were very lengthy. I remember watching people um, in the media trying to report on the Affordable Care Act decision when it came out from the Supreme Court. And this was the Sibelius versus the National Federation of Independent Businesses decision a few years back. And that was when you had Robert's vote 5-4 in favor of upholding it, considering the individual mandate to be a tax. And people couldn't understand. It was such a long decision. They were trying to interpret it on air, and it was very, very difficult. As we speak about that individual mandate, one of the things that's important is that it would be abolished in this piece of legislation. And that's got a lot of tension because the individual mandate was one of the critical but also most controversial components of the Affordable Care Act, a.k.a. Obamacare. So this would eliminate that requirement. It would do a couple other things that I consider to be really important as well. So I just wanted to highlight the big things. I know we talked about the differences between the Senate and the House budget last week. But it would reduce the top individual rate just a smidge. So right now it's at 39.6% this would drop it down to 38.5%. Now, in addition to that, it would take out deductions. So you wouldn't have any personal exemptions as deductions, um, but it would double the child tax credit. And that would go from what is now $1,000 up to $2,000. A lot of the itemized deductions that traditionally you've had in the past, so one of them that's been somewhat controversial as this this process has gone through, The SALT taxes, which it's SALT, the state and local taxes, taxes. I know it's redundant to say SALT taxes, but and yet everyone says them. And if you just say SALT, you sound like a crazy person. But let's say it long form then. The state and local taxes, um, in terms of income, there are things in terms of like unreimbursed employee expenses, sometimes casualty losses, a lot of things that people traditionally like to itemize as deductions, those would be eliminated as well. So you, you see an elimination, a lot of the deductions, but that said, the, ta- the child tax credit has been doubled. Uh, for the estate tax, so right now it's at $5.5 million. And so if you make that much, if you have that much, and you want to pass it on to your children, uh, it's taxed pretty heavily. If you're anything below that, you aren't punished sorry you're not you're not rich enough for the state tax uh and you would be in good company because i'm not either and i will never be but they're basically doubling it to 11 million dollars for a single taxpayer and then if you're looking at an annual household income um at this point they're doubling that into 22 million dollars um, but, and then I think the, those are probably the biggest things in terms of the differences. The other thing, of course, is the reduction in the corporate tax rate. And that's something I, I've spent a lot of time talking about here because that was one of the concerns with regards to the national deficit. Will this follow, as the Republicans believe, the trickle-down economic theory? That's something that conservatives have held for a very long time. Or will it, in fact, not follow that, as the Democrats would argue, and will this add more to the national deficit? This is Dr. Laura Merrifield-Wilson here on Positively Politics on WICR 88.7, The Diamond, talking a little bit about the procedures, about everything that went down in terms of legislative schedule. So after giving you the details about this and and where we are now, as I mentioned, I know a lot of people who weren't as familiar with the system kept saying, so when is it being signed into law? Has the president, when does this go into effect? And to borrow from Lee Corso from College Game Day, big fan, not so fast, my friends. That was an okay Lee Corso impression. I know it wasn't great, but not so fast. This bill is right now going through reconciliation because, you know, when we learn about how a bill becomes a law in high school or in a college political science class, if you watch the Schoolhouse Rock version, awesome song, by the way, I'm Just a Bill, you know, fantastic you should look it up if you aren't familiar but but when we learn about that one of the things we don't learn about is what happens if a piece of legislation passes through the house and one passes through the senate and they're very similar but very similar is not the same okay in terms of taxation and fiscal policy it goes through a special uh, joint committee and through the process of what we call reconciliation and so the reconciliation is basically the reconciliation how apropos, I know, between what the House is providing and suggesting and what the Senate is. And so looking at the differences between the legislation and basically a compromise, what will the final piece of legislation look like? And that has to ultimately be voted on because it's not going to look like the same thing that everyone's already voted for. you know. And, and this is a joint committee when we talk about the different committee styles because this, this comes together from a conference committee where people are all um, from both the House and the Senate coming in. And so this is something that's that's really important in terms of the process and uh, also very time-sensitive because the president and his administration have repeatedly emphasized how they want to get this done that this needs to be accomplished before basically the holiday session, and so I was perusing around. I was looking at the U.S. Senate website, and they have a list of the tentative 2017 schedule, and they note that they're going to be basically um, released from session on December 17th. So that will be their last day in session. After that, um, they are, you know, they're they're going to go home. They're going to do what they call the the work release. <laughs> which I always think sounds funny because that that makes it sound like they're, um, you know, in prison, which some of our former representatives are. But in this case, it's the state work period. It it means they're going to go home. And so you're looking at this and you're thinking, oh, my gosh, nine days. You know, they have nine days to accomplish all of this. It's going to be very tight. And whether or not they can do that would be, you know, an incredible advantage, of course, if they could. I wouldn't say it's the biggest political failure, you know, of this year even, given everything that's gone on, but but it's nonetheless it's something that's really important. So we're definitely going to be watching this. I know I'll be talking about it again next week to see how things have transpired, but a lot going on there. This is Dr. Laura Merrifield-Wilson on Positively Politics on WICR 88.7 The Diamond. And I wanted to talk about the newest round, and I feel like they really are the newest round of allegations, and, and kind of where people are in terms of sexual assault, sexual harassment, and the public sector. You know, if, if you're a regular listener, you know I have lamented how someone in the private sector um, has been found, you know, exhibiting this behavior. Boom, axed, done. They're out. And then someone who's an elected official is found guilty of this behavior. And, you know, they decide whether or not they want to resign. People are really slow to call for it. You know, it seems that everyone from the opposite party thinks it's wrong. But, gosh, when it's your own party, now nah, that's excusable. And, like, we're holding a double standard for our elected officials. This this really bothers me. Uh, and we, in some ways, are allowing them to get away with things that we would not allow others to get away with. I feel like it should be the exact Opposite. They should be held to a higher standard. They should have a higher moral and ethical ground. And they represent us. You know, they are our face, our voice, our name in terms of creating legislation. So, as we go through this, um, most recently this Thursday, you had Al Franken announce that he was going to be stepping down. You had John Conyers announce that he was no longer going to run for reelection. Uh, you you saw a lot of some movement. I guess I'd be hard pressed to say a lot of movement, so some movement in terms of people in these cases, um, both Democrats, one from the Senate, one from the House, um, who've been found you know, essentially guilty of these allegations and are and are ultimately responding because of it. And not unprovoked, I should add. I know there are a lot of people that were saying, Oh, you know, we're so quick to you know, we're we're so quick to judge or to criticize. To me, if someone did something wrong and and not just the allegation of it, but if you can prove it, then no, they don't deserve to be in public office. I have too high esteem for elected officials to allow that for sexual behavior, financial misgivings, whatever it might be. I don't have tolerance for that, you know, and I'm I'm a forgiving person. But that said, if someone's had repeated behavior, if something's very severe, I just don't think that's acceptable. And I don't think any of us should just accept that, Uh, you know, coming On after that, then you have Trent Franks of Arizona. You have a representative from Texas. So many people, these stories just keep coming out. And I think there's so many different negative takes on this. It's a very ugly thing to think about how many people have been hurt through these. Um, And there's a lot of things that have been said that I could repeat, but that's not the point. That's not why I'm here, to repeat things that have already been said. I think one thing that we need to focus on, and this is the the positive side about it, uh, something I genuinely believe in, but when you have these vacancies and you have these open seats, these are opportunities. You know, I know – like Republicans have really divided feelings on Roy Moore. Some of them support him. The party recently reaffirmed their support after the president said that he would support him. And yet you had Mitch McConnell who said no, he shouldn't be running for office. And you had Nancy Pelosi for it took a while, but to say that um, Al Franken should step down. And you have like all those little pockets of difference, and you know how fast or slow people are to claim different things. But I see these every single one of these as an opportunity. Every open seat every new position, you know, someone ruined their own career by making a bad decision, and in some cases, a series of bad decisions. But that leads an open door for somebody else to come in. And I can't think of anything more exciting than new blood, new ideas, you know, new perspectives on the issues that are facing us right now. And I'm certainly not excited that people are ruining their own political careers. I I think that's very unfortunate. It's a horrible way to go out. You you can tarnish your entire reputation, but I also think that behavior is inexcusable. So that's, if you do that to yourself, you've done that to yourself. And for that, you should be sorry. These are opportunities and I think we should harness them. Now, what do you think? Shoot me an email. I always love hearing from my listeners. My email is L as in Laura, M as in Merrifield, Wilson, W-I-L-S-O-N at E D U. You know, are these opportunities? What is it? What can we look at now and look at the spread for 2018 and say, ah, this is going to be the new thing. You know, I, I think there's a lot out there. Thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your Saturday for WICR 88.7 and Diamond Positively Politics. This has been Dr. Laura Merrifield Wilson. Take care.